All right, so open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you aren't there already, and we're going to take verses 25 through 31. Now, in chapter 7, it's a very important chapter because it deals with social issues, particularly with singleness and marriage. And so we've been really trying to cover the gamut when it comes to this area of singleness and when it comes to the area of marriage. Now, in the church and throughout history, some people have elevated marriage and diminished singleness, and others have elevated singleness, i.e. the Roman Catholic Church, and diminished marriage. And so there's always been this counterbalance that's been going on. And the Bible has a very clear stance. If you're single, that's a good thing. If you're married, that's a good thing. Wherever you are in life, let God use you right where you are, no excuses. But when it comes to biblical singleness, we just think of, well, I'm unmarried, therefore I'm single. The Bible really defines biblical singleness as being unmarried and being pure sexually not being defiled, not fooling around, not having a little side piece, you know, all of these things that we think of as a single person. Well, I can just go do whatever I want. That's not biblical singleness. Singleness along the side or along with being chaste or not fooling around and have sexual immorality present. When it comes to marriage, Paul deals with you are to not be celibate. You are to do the exact opposite when you're married. Not uh, being celibate, not refraining from your sexual partner, but as much as possible, pleasing your mate. And there's two reasons why he says that. Number one, your body belongs to God, chapter six, and to your spouse, chapter seven. You are not your own. Number two, if you don't please your mate, somebody else will. Verse five says, Satan will come along and tempt them. And that temptation, which can lead to adultery, is one of the means or grounds for divorce. And so don't allow Satan, don't allow your flesh to go about uh, being pleased by someone else. And one way we can be proactive instead of reactive in that is having your spouse sexually please you and you sexually pleasing your mate. Now, when it comes to divorce, there's one ground for divorce amongst a Christian union, and that is adultery. But there's other scenarios. What about a Christian who's married to unbelievers? Maybe they were unbelievers when when they got married and then one ends up following Christ and now you have this, this marriage that's unequally yoked. What do we do then? Paul says in chapter seven, if you're married to an unbeliever and they consent to live with you, they're not hostile towards the gospel. They're not necessarily uh, against going to church or sending kids, their kids off to VBS or a Christian school. And they want to make the marriage work. They want the house to stay intact. The believer is bound to stay with that mate. Scenario number two, if the unbeliever is hostile, and doesn't want the things of God, doesn't want to work things out, and decides, I'm going to go and leave because marriage is, or my life is all about being happy. Then if that person leaves and files for divorce, let them go. The brother or sister is not bound by God or the law to remain married. They are free to stay single, or they are free to get remarried before the Lord. Then last week, we looked at different areas of social life, whether I'm rich or I'm poor, whether I'm a Jew or any other race, whether I am uh, smart or not smart, it doesn't matter. We are to serve God right where God has us, which brings up an interesting point, particularly in the minds of the Corinthians. And that's why they write to Paul asking certain questions. Well, what about singleness? Is it a good thing and why? And so, This week and next week, we're going to look at why is actually a blessed thing to be single, which flies in the face of most cultures throughout all of history. Even today, when marriage is diminished and diluted, even today, you go to West Africa or North Africa, you go to certain parts of Latin America, you go to India, Indonesia, you go to the Jews or to the Arabs, and you'll find marriage is highly elevated. Paul now tells us why singleness is good and the reasons behind it. And some of these things are absolutely fascinating. So we're going to take three next week and potentially at least two next week. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 25. And this is the first reason why it is good to be single. 
Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So Paul starts off by saying, I have no command of the Lord. I give my opinion. And everybody feels like we're all in, always entitled to our own opinion. And truthfully so, our own opinion always is gospel. There can never be anything wrong with my opinion. Your opinion may be way off, but mine is never off. Paul is not just giving us some form of suggestion that we can or cannot hold to or think through. What Paul is saying is, that the Lord himself never actually spoke on these matters of the blessedness of singleness. In his three-year ministry where he went preaching and teaching, he wasn't really talking about those specific issues. So Paul then begins to fill in the gap. And there's two reasons why we are to take his word as authority and as gospel. Number one, what was his office or his position? He was an apostle. And what was the purpose of the apostleship? To do what specifically within the church? To spread the gospel and then do what? Plant the base, right? They were the ones who laid the foundation. And any of you construction workers know, you cannot build a sure structure on a shaky foundation. The foundation has to be laid perfect, secure, firm, and then you can build the church on top. And that was the purpose of the apostles. They went to places where the gospel had never been preached, and they began to lay the foundation by what Maria said, preaching the gospel, by what Bertie said, discipling believers and then the the apostles or the uh, prophets and the pastors and the evangelists can build upon the structure so the apostles if you notice throughout the new testament wrote the majority of the new testament their word was inspired which leads us to number two who wrote first corinthians chapter seven our text for this morning paul the apostle and the holy spirit All scripture is God-breathed. So the fact that it's in this text, in this Bible, is an assurance that the Holy Spirit alongside Paul wrote this text. So this isn't something just to take lightly. It is actually revelatory truth. It is actual gospel. Now, this is what he says about singleness. There's three reasons why it's good to be single in our text. Number one is of this present distress there in verse 26. And he's speaking to, to women who are single, and he's speaking to men who are single. Verse 25 is virgins, and it's feminine. And in verse 26 at the end, it is good for a man to remain as he is. So whether you are male and female, it's actually good to be single. And this is why the reason for it, verse 26, I think then that it is good in view of the present distress Now, the word present is the the word that we know. It means to be upon us. And it's written in the perfect tense, which is it's always upon us. Paul is saying, number one, why it's good to be single? Because life is hard. And it's always hard. The word distress means distress or calamity or trouble. And it's the idea of an external pressure. We have an idiom, and maybe you've heard of it, the, the walls or the, the, are caving in or closing in on us. Have you heard that before? It, there's, a, there's a pressure, an external pressure squeezing us, almost like an anaconda around its prey or a weed around a root of a plant trying to zap and take the nutrients. There's this external pressure from the world that is always upon the Christian believer. And it never stops and it never wavers. It's always there. Now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul uses this word in the exact same way. And then he begins to define it for us. And these are the present distresses that Paul talks about and why it's actually blessed to be a single Christian. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. 
and working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in in afflictions, in hardships, and here's our word, in distresses. Now, verse five begins to define that. In beatings, imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, and in hunger. What are the external pressures that Paul is saying the world always puts upon us? The first one is dealing with persecution. He says beatings, and that's the word for a one-on-one fight. The world, because we are counter the system, will always want to persecute you and I. Here in this world, in 2022, there are 58 countries where the Bible is still prohibited. And there's all kinds of people who are hostile to the gospel. You go to the college campus here in America, and it's one of the most hostile environments in the world. One out of every seven Christians in the world live in an environment where they are persecuted and potentially could lose their life. There's radical Hinduism in India. There's radical Islam throughout the Middle East. You have countries like the uh, Chinese Communist Party and North Korea that actually have concentration camps. The average lifespan is about six weeks as they work Christians down to the bone and then they die. There is persecutions that will always be upon the Christian, these external pressures. It comes from people and it also comes from governments. The second word is imprisonments. And this is civil persecution. These are the things that the countries that they feel um, very threatened by the gospel and by Christians, they begin to persecute. And we don't have to go to the other side of the world to experience persecution. We see persecution in our own country. We see it actually everywhere if you have eyes to see what is going on. I read Tons of little articles and tons of reports. Yale came out with a study. Washington Post came out with an article. CNN came out with an article. Uh, The Miller Organization came out with a study. All of them concluding the same thing. The most dangerous threat to the U.S. democracy is not foreign attack, but white Christian men. That was their conclusion, and all of those were done in 2022. Uh, If you have our discord, you'll see that there was a Catholic priest who was arrested and he's being charged by the FBI and he was an advocate for pro-life and that's why they are going after him. Since Roe v. Wade, we've had over 40 churches or 40 pro-life clinics either being burned down or destroyed or vandalized. Zero arrests have been made by the DOJ, FBI, and Homeland Security. Zero. And over the 40, there are only four that are continuing in ongoing investigation. The rest, they said, well, we don't know what happened. Case closed. Persecution, I've been saying for six years, is coming, is coming, is coming. Now I'm going to change that. Persecution is here. That external pressure that the Christians will face is going to be more and more and more as we move forward. So if you were born before 1980, you've had it pretty good in this country. It was a pro-Christian, pro-God, you know, it wasn't perfect, but there was an environment where you can express your faith. If you're after 1981, you're going to be living a life where the majority of it is going to be an environment where there is persecution, this external distress that is coming upon the Christian. So we need to know what we believe, why we believe it, and stand firm in the faith. Paul is saying, as a single person, you only have to deal with yourself. If I'm thrown in prison as a single person, I have to worry about myself. If you're thrown in prison as a married person, particularly if you're the breadwinner, 
You have to worry about how is my wife or my husband going to eat? How are my children going to feed themselves? Who is going to protect them? So there are all these other things that are going on within the married person's life. So in an environment where the world is hostile to the gospel, it is actually a good thing to be single. Then you see the next word there is tumult. And that means mass confusion. And this is dealing with rioting, looting, where, have, I don't know if you've ever been in an environment where there's a, a lot of people and then chaos breaks out and everybody's going crazy. For some reason, people just start picking up chairs and throwing them, right? It's like, well, where's the logic in that? People start burning down buildings for what they believe is a righteous cause and burning down mom and pop shops and looting and, and rioting and hurting people and all the rest. For what reason? This tumult is a form of persecution and it will come upon the Christian church. When you look at Paul the apostle in in Ephesus, he was under a mass riot where they had confusion because his views and his message was taking away from the system's money. And they didn't like that. And they said, we need to protect the almighty dollar. So they began to persecute him heavily. In Acts 22 and 23, they gave, they trumped up false charges, is disinformation and fake news. They said he brought a Gentile into the temple, into the holy place, which was not true. And they stirred up the mob and the mob almost killed him. If it wasn't for the Roman soldiers there on Fort Antonia who came down and saved him, they would have ripped him, the Bible says, limb from limb. That is another form of persecution. You have it from individuals, you have it from the state, and then you also have it from the mass rioters or the the angry, delirious mob. And then the word labors. The Christian is to expect here in this life, in this world, at a time, seasons, where of excruciating pain and suffering. We say this, oh, she's going to give birth, she's in what? labor and that's that greek word now if you can think with your mind a woman giving birth and going through that excruciating pain and then compare that to the christian's walk as we stand firm as we voice our opinions as we say you know we're not we're going to stand for the sanctity of marriage we're going to stand for the sanctity of life we're not going to give an inch on these sort of matters there is going to be times of extreme hardship which leads to personal necessities being lost, like sleep and food. Sleepless nights, potentially, and even the loss of food. Paul says these are those distresses that is to come upon the Christian person. And these aren't suggestions. These aren't things that may or may not happen. These are actually promises from the Bible. In John Chapter 16, verse 33, listen to the words of Christ. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. And here's a promise we don't like. In the world, you will have tribulation. He's not saying it might be so. He's saying it will be so. Now here's the even greater promise. But take courage for I have overcome the world. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Now, here's another promise you don't see on coffee mugs, you don't see on Christian calendars, you won't find on any decals at a church. Verse 12, indeed, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We have some young people going to be heading off to college soon. You will, if you desire to live godly, be persecuted for your faith. No doubt about it. You will be persecuted if you desire to live godly. Now, here's the question for us as Christians. Do we desire to live godly? because it's a tough road. Any dead fish can float downstream, can just go with the flow. But God's not called us to death 
He's called us to life. He's called us to stand firm in the faith and he's called us to be outspoken. Be assured, rest assured, you will suffer persecution for that sake. Things like, well, you know, your job loss. And so us as married people in particular, we say, well, I I can't lose my insurance for my family. I can't uh, squander my retirement now, so I'm not going to voice my opinion. I'm not going to stand firm. I'm not going to say things that's going to rock the boat because I need to protect my nest. I need to protect my family. The reality is as a married person, we are to live even though we are as if we are single. In verse 29, Paul says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who had wives should be as those who, though they had none. And what he's saying is, don't let your marital status govern how you minister and how you speak out the gospel. It's a much greater responsibility for a married person. Imagine this. If I was to be thrown in prison, I have to not only take care of myself, but then figure out who in the world is going to take care of my family. If I was to die, you have to think about, is my wife going to end up at the soup kitchen? Is my kid just going to end up as an orphan? These things go through the, the mind of married people. There's much more responsibility. As a single person, we don't have that. Then from the flip side, who, who as a spouse wants to see their, their beloved and their children be crushed because their husband or their wife is being persecuted by the world? So there's a real strong inclination to say, honey, you know, why don't you just pipe down a little bit? Is this really the hill that you want to die upon? Is this something that you really want to follow through with? In marriage, because of that responsibility, there can be a hindrance from pressing the gospel forward. Paul says, if you're married, live as though you're single in that way. If you're single, it's good. Because in these times of trials and tribulations, in the time of Christian persecution, you'll be able to prevail because you're only dealing with yourself. So number one, life is hard. That's why it's so blessed to be single and only really having to worry about yourself. Now in verse 27 and 28, marriage is hard. So a single person doesn't have to deal with the the baggage that may come along with a rocky marriage. Look at verse 27 and 28. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So wherever God has you, serve the Lord. If you're single, remain in your singleness. Don't don't spend your whole life desiring to get married because it comes with its own issues. If you're married, don't seek to do divorce your wife, God will use you right where you're at. And if you're single and do decide to get married, you're not in sin. The man who decides to be married, he's not sinning before the Lord. Marriage is a good thing. The woman that decides to get married, she's not sinning before the Lord. Marriage is a good thing. What Paul is saying is the institution of marriage is blessed and good, but those who are married, i.e. me and you, aren't. Look at verse 28. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. The word life is found 126 times in the New Testament, and it's the Greek word sarks. Does anybody know what sarks means? It's a very common word, and it means flesh. It doesn't mean life at all. It means the flesh. So It can mean your race, but Paul's not talking about your race here. It could mean about your actual physical body, your 10 fingers and your 10 toes, but Paul's not talking about that here. And the third one, it's talking about your old fallen sin nature. Ding, 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 we have a winner. Paul is saying marriage is a good thing. However, I'm trying to spare you. Because in marriage, you're joining two sinners together. And that potential fallen nature can lead to conflict and fireworks. When you're single, you're only dealing with your flesh. You're only dealing with your shortcomings. You're only dealing with your battles. 
when you're married, you're dealing with yours and you're dealing with the sin nature of your spouse, their shortcomings and their addictions and their problems. And then when you have little babies behind those beautiful angelic eyes, rests the sinner. You don't have to teach your kids how to disobey, talk back, steal, hit their spouse. I mean, their spouse, hit their siblings. They naturally do it. It's a natural inclination. It is because we are born in sin. And so you'll have in a family, the, the, the kid will come and say, well, dad said I can do it. Well, mom said I can do it. And they begin to pin husband and wife together. And when husband and wife are pinned together, they may resort to their own flesh and boom, now you have conflict. In Genesis, marriage is a good thing. Paul or uh, the writer of Genesis which is Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, began to document the very beginning and how Adam was in the garden and everything was good and perfect and holy, and yet he still desired more. There wasn't a helpmate suitable for him. So what did God do for Adam? He created a woman. He put him to sleep, and then out of man came woman. So you had Adam and Eve, and then you had the very first institution ever created before government, before the church, before the law, before any uh, form of society, you had the institution of marriage, the oldest institution in planet earth. And he said, man is to leave father and mother and be joined to his wife and two flesh become one. And then they are to be fruitful and multiply, uh, fill the earth and then subdue it. So Adam and Eve, they were in the garden. They were naked. They were not ashamed. They were doing the, the work of the Lord and everything was good until Genesis chapter three. And sin entered in and then God began to curse the creation, curse Satan, curse man and curse woman. And there the friction began. So turn with me to Genesis chapter three, verse 16. This is now God speaking to, uh, to Eve, cursing Eve and therefore cursing the woman. Genesis chapter three and verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Can any ladies testify that the curse is real? Amen. Imagine the days before the epidural, right? Can, can the lady say amen to the curse? This is real. Here's another part of the curse. Ver, uh, end of 16. Yet your desire will be for your husband. Now, some have said that that's actually a blessing. That's, there's no blessing in that. God is cursing sin and the one who introduced sin via Satan, the woman, and the man. The word desire is found in the very next chapter. If you turn to Genesis 4 and verse 7. This is God now speaking to Cain who killed his brother Abel. In verse 7, we see the only other time this word desire is used. He says, verse 7, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. What do we know about sin? A little leaven does what? Sin permeates through your entire life. Sin seeks to master you and control all of you. Now put that context or that idea with the woman. Because of the curse, the wife is going to want to master and control and dictate her husband and her family. She is going to want to, as we call it, wear the pants in the relationship or micromanage everything. At your house, who chose the, the color of the, the paint on your walls? Who chose all the fittings? Who chose the scent that you smell on these candles burning? Who tells you when we're to eat and what we're eating? Even if you allow that old sin nature of the wife to flourish. She's even want to uh, tell you how you're supposed to do your hair, 
what side of the bed you sleep on, what sink is yours, and even what how to dress. <laughs> That's not something to be pleased about. That shows an old, sinful, flesh nature that is not being controlled by the Spirit. It's not something to boast about. That is something where you are walking in the flesh and not in the Spirit. It's a terrible thing because this kind of nature destroys families. She wants to micromanage and dictate everything. And if allowed so, she will control the house, which is exactly the opposite of what God has commanded. So now a Christian is saved. We're to die to the old flesh. We're to live the new life. And what's the command of the New Testament for the wife? Submission, which is counterintuitive which is unnatural because her sin nature says, no, 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 I want to dictate and call the shots. But I am dead to my old self. I am living now for Christ and I am going to submit unto my husband as unto the Lord. So when you have a household ran in a way where the wife is dictating everything, it shows that that household is in the flesh. The old nature is still prevailing within the home. Now we go to verse 16, going back to Genesis 3, and the last part of verse 16. In pain you will bring forth childbearing or bring forth children, yet your desire, you will want to micromanage and control everything, will be for your husband. And what is his response? He will what? Rule over you. And this is another un natural or a fleshly natural desire of the man. They're going to want to fight back. The word rule means to rule with an iron fist. It means to rule unlovingly as a dictator. He's going to want to steamroll. He's going to want to say, this is how the house is to be run by any means necessary. He's going to want to be fierce and aggressive towards his wife. So you go post-cross, and what's the command of the husband in the home? What's the command of the husband in the home? Lead in what? Love, which is unnatural. The old flesh says, no, 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 I don't want to lead in love. Colossians 3.19 says, lead in love and don't be harsh towards your wife. What's the natural inclination, husbands? Oh, you're doing it too slow. You're not doing it right. Just move out the way. I'll do it myself, right? It's, it's leading harshly, leading abruptly, leading aggressively. That's the old sin nature. So if you're a husband at home and you see yourself steamrolling your wife, that's not something to be proud of. We're not sitting up with our feet up saying, oh, look how macho I am. It's an indication of the old sin nature. It's an indication that you're not walking in the spirit. So the old flesh says to the wife, I micromanage, and to the husband, I rule with authority. And what happens when you have a woman who wants to lead and a man who wants to lead in the home? Conflict, inevitably. And that's because of the fall. And that's why marriage is falling apart in our country and really across the world. Because you have the push of feminism, which puts pressure on the woman to, to voice her opinion in a way that is not, necessary, not necessarily godly. In 1 Peter 3, uh, what, is the, what does God say about a woman who is quiet and a woman who is, who is subdued in a way in which she's just loving and gracious, even if her husband is a pig? He's, yeah, he says, it is precious in his sight. It is precious. So you have a marriage, you have friction within the home, the old sin natures are at work even though we're walking in the Lord and boom, there's constant conflict. Now going back to our text, Paul is saying, yet such will have trouble in this flesh and I am trying to spare you. If you're single, you don't have to deal with that conflict at home. You don't have to deal with your spouse and your own sin nature and her sin nature or his sin nature always butting heads. You're free to be able to serve the Lord and potentially without drama. Now, here's a little tip from the Bible. If you have a man who on Monday through Sunday is walking in the Holy Spirit, they seek to read their scripture every day, 
not just getting fed on Sunday mornings. They seek to, to have fellowship with other believers. They seek fellowship with God's Holy Spirit. And you have the wife who is doing the same thing. Marriage is an incredible blessing as both are not walking in their sin nature, but in newness of life, where the husband is leading and loving his family and his wife can easily follow behind because she knows he has my best intentions and ultimately the Lord has our back. But if we don't walk in the spirit, you can guarantee a rocky marriage. And Paul is saying, I'm trying to spare you from that. So number one, the blessing of singleness is you don't have to deal or you don't have as much pressure from the world systems or as much concern. Number two, marriage is tough or can be tough. And he's trying to spare you from that. Now, verses 29 through 31 is the last one. We'll see for today. The world is fleeting and passing away. Marriage, experience, and all of our possessions are simply fleeting and passing away. Look at verse 29 through 31. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. In verse 29, he says, our time or the season in which you and I live on earth is shortened. And the word means to roll up a scroll. So construction workers, how big are those blueprints? Those things are huge, right? And then you get them up and you roll them up. And this much real estate ends up being, you know, that much real estate. And that's the idea of our lives. Our lives are short, there is a real brevity of life. James talks about our lives are likened unto a vapor. So if you ever seen somebody vape and puff out a big old cloud of smoke, how long does that smoke last? Like three seconds, five seconds, 10, and it's gone. That's likened to a man's life. It's poof here and then gone forever. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flowers falls off. You look at our grass, you look at flowers, you look at anything, it's here one day and it's gone another. As you're getting older, you might notice in the mirror there's more wrinkles. You might notice that the, the hair is gray or there's no hair at all. What used to stand up and be strong is now sagging. All of us, like grass, are withering away. It's really the brevity of life. And I was telling that exact same thing to my cousin on Friday. He's not a born-again believer, and we were just talking about life. And I said, listen, all of your experiences, all, because he's a real party guy, you know, he likes to be the life of the party, huge personality. I was like, all of those party experiences and, and trying to make people have a great time, None of that is going to be remembered a thousand years from now. How much money you make is not going to be remembered. What you've done in this life for personal experience and memory, none of that lasts. And I told them the only thing that really lasts is what you do for Christ. Outside of that, everything is just fleeting away. And he just sat there for about 30 seconds, nodded his head. He was really deep in thought. And all he said was, that's a crazy thought. But that's a very true thought. You can, you can be the richest man in the world and it's not going to save you from death. It will not. Our lives are short. And so the Bible says, make every day count. Let every day be for God's glory because you're here one day and then you're not and then you will be judged on one thing, what you did for Christ. And that's all that matters. 
Everything else is fleeting. It's a temporary thing, including marriage. So Paul says in verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as those they, that had none. Marriage is passing away. Did you know that? As the world system passes away, so does marriage. It's a part of the old system that is fleeting and passing away. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 29 and 30. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Why did God institute marriage? Or for whom did God institute marriage? For us. Marriage isn't for God. Marriage is for us. He saw Adam in need. He brought forth woman and he gave the institution of marriage. God doesn't need the marriage institution. It's for us as humans to have a helpmate or companion in this time there where there will be distresses. In heaven and when Christ comes and the new heaven and the new earth, none of us will be given in marriage. We will be single like the angels. So what Paul is saying is, hey, if you're married, that's fine, but as a single person, don't seek it because that is a flailing, fleeing, disintegrating union. That is ultimately going to banish. And if you really want to live like you are in heaven, be single. So he talks about marriage being fleeting. And then he talks about our personal experiences being fleeting. And then ultimately our possessions. Look at verse 30. And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Paul is saying in this life, there will be great times of weeping. And we know that there's gonna be times of pain, sorrow, anguish, where we have to bury a loved one, where we lose a job, where we have to you know, uh, go through serious trials and tribulations in our own life. Weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That time or season of weeping does pass away. It goes and then ushers in a time of rejoicing. So don't get bogged down in that season of weeping where you say, I can't be of any use to God. You know, I'm out of commission because I'm, I'm depressed or I have too much anxiety. I'm too sad to serve. That emotion and that season passes away. And same with rejoicing. You have a whole slew of people in the world who their only purpose in life is to have fun, to have times of rejoicing. But the, the lights go out, the balloons deflate, the food goes cold, the party ends at some point. So don't say, well, I'm having a, a gay old time. I'm having a great time in life. Therefore, I'm just going to put God on the back burner. And, you know, I'll get back to him, you know, when I need him. And that's what happens all the time. When the times are good and we're comfortable, I don't need to go to church. I'm good. It's in the times of hurting and pain where it's like, man, I, I, I think I really need God now. In every experience, we need the Lord. And those emotions, good times or bad times, are fleeting. What is 100 years on this earth compared to eternity? Think about that. It's, it's like a drop of water compared to all the, the water of the oceans. And that's our time on earth. Those are our experiences, good or bad. That's our time in marriage, good or bad. And then lastly, possessions. Look at verse 30. And those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use for it. And that's possessions. Have you ever seen at a memorial service a U-Haul truck behind a hearse? No, because you don't take your possessions anywhere. Naked I came into this world, and naked I shall leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
From the ground I was taken up, and from the ground I shall return. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. We came from the ground, and we're going right back to the ground. And we cannot take our possessions anywhere. Doesn't matter how big my 401k is, my Roth IRA is. Doesn't matter how many properties I own. It doesn't matter about uh, how big I've built my business. None of that matters. What matters is what I do for the Lord. Now, when you're married, experiences and money play a much bigger part in the whole scope of things. Right, the Bible commands us to to uh, get our house in order, and that deals with finances. When I die, I don't want my wife, you know, to be out there trying to scrounge for her last meal. So the Bible says, plan ahead for those things. The Bible in Proverbs talks about giving a good inheritance to your kids. That means I have to acquire things. I actually have to entangle myself with worldly things in order to bless my family when I go, to make sure that they are taken care of should the Lord take me. As a single person, what do you have to worry about? You die and you can throw me in a ditch. I'm gone. Absent from the body is present with the Lord, right? I don't have to worry about anybody else. I'm only concerned about myself. That's the thrust of Paul's point. Everything is fleeting. So if I'm living to be married and I'm living for experience and I'm living to build my own empire, I'm doing it wrong because none of that really matters. And then he closes with the end of verse 31. For the form of this world is passing away. It's going to be burned. And there's going, God's going to start afresh, a new heaven and a new earth. And the old and former things have passed away. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes and we will never remember this life. That's the brevity of it. That's how short it is. And if you don't think it's short, think about when you graduated kindergarten right? Or think about when you graduated middle school, just go back in your mind just for a second. And it doesn't seem that far away. And then you start adding up the years and you're like, oh my goodness, that much time has passed. You know, I think about my graduation, high school graduation. I'm like, oh my goodness, that much time has passed since I've graduated. It just goes so quick. It goes so fast. And the only thing that matters is what we do for Christ. So Paul says, what's the blessedness of single, singleness? Number one, the world is hard, harsh, and life is tough. As a single person, you're only concerned with self. Number two, marriage is tough. And as a single person, you don't have to deal with the sin nature of your family members. And then number three, ultimately, everything is passing away. And so let's close with just this uh, final verse, Colossians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Now, the very first word, therefore. So, Bertie, when we see the word therefore, what, what do we say? Why is it therefore? And so whenever you see therefore, we always go back. And so the very last verse of chapter 2 says this. There is no value against fleshly indulgence, meaning if I'm drunk or addicted or, or have any other things that are driving my fleshly impulse, it is zero value. Absolutely zero. There is no value in that life. Now, verse three, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, so you're a Christian, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Paul is saying this, in order for you to be earthly good for God, you have to be heavenly minded. Keep your head in the clouds and always think, you know what? I might not live to 100. I might leave this potluck today and a drunk driver ram me and, and my life is over. What have I done for Christ? Keep your mind constantly 
in heavenly things, thinking about the Lord's kingdom and how you can propel that forward because ultimately we do not know when we go home. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and as we head into this time of communion, Lord God, I I pray that you would uh, work on our hearts, work on our flesh, Lord God, work on our own sinful uh, tendencies and nature. Lord, we've we battle, Lord God, the flesh. Jesus, you said that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so, God, I, I pray that as we uh, review our last days, we review our last weeks, we review our last month since we've uh, taken communion as a church. I pray, God, that we would recall our sins and that we would be willing to repent. Lord, you've told us to Come to your table in a worthy manner. Just as Judas was dismissed from the Lord's Supper, so too, Lord, those who are not Christians are dismissed from the Lord's Supper. But those who partook, Lord God, were faithful Christians, those who would ultimately give their life for the gospel. And so, God, you've called us to be faithful and good Christians here on earth. And you've called us to come before you in a worthy manner, without spot, without blemish, without sin in our lives that we are unwilling to repent of. And you've also said, Lord God, that those who take the cup in an unworthy manner will heap judgment upon themselves. And even in the early church, some have died for taking communion in an unworthy manner. And so God, we don't uh, seek to, to do that. We seek to be a blessing and not a curse. We seek to honor you, not ourselves. And so, Lord, would you uh, allow us to take this time to examine and to search our hearts for the sins, God, that we know of and that are coming to the mind as the Holy Spirit is convicting and even those sins, Lord God, that we are unaware of. Would you forgive us? Would you heal us? Would you wash us with the blood of Christ, your body which was broken, Lord, on that cross for us? And we were crucified with Christ so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ in us. God, would you take this moment, take this time to minister, to convict, and to call us unto repentance? And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.